This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Geocaching scenarios. The Mask of Rex Harrison. Directional taboos. And Jose Lopez Rega. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to a small spot marked on our GPS reader. Because today, we're answering a question from beloved Patreon backer Carrie Shutrick, who asks, So now that you mention it, how do you gamify and or elliptonize geocaching and letterboxing? Robin, we did mention it, right? Right in the in the egg episode, and and I guess we originally mentioned this in the context of bird crime, right? So we were talking about uh, the unfortunate, small yet extremely destructive illicit hobby of collecting eggs from endangered bird species, and uh, we suggested that uh, you know maybe you could wean people off this with some sort of elaborate geocaching thing that allows them to think that they've you know captured the electronic version of the egg, and that of course just brought up regular old geocaching. And the challenge with this, I think, is that it's so easy to do. (laughs) It's it's already a game. And uh, to put it into any of the uh, games that we work on is is, uh, pretty straightforward. So I guess other angles to go at this uh, before we get down into the nitty gritty of breaking it down for each game is geocaching uh, has been up during the pandemic because it's something you can do with your small family group from your bubble that gets you out of the house. And uh, for those who are unfamiliar, have you geocached, Ken? I have not geocached. When I'm screwing around on Google Earth, it's uh, for purposes of crime or writing. Right. Or writing about here, crime, but the, the, the deal is basically that you uh, people put these little caches full of uh, trinkets and mementos and things and and hide them in places that are hard but not dangerous to get to, uh, places that they're allowed to put them and not endanger uh, people getting to them or uh, not putting them on private property without permission or putting them near archaeology sites or, you know, near endangered habitats. Those are all no-nos. But given all of those things, you put these little caches and and then uh, you and your family members uh, go and uh, find them. You uh, pull 
the contents of this container aside. It's full of cool trinkets. In a lot of cases, you are allowed to take a trinket and leave a trinket so that the contents of the cache evolve over time. And there's even a thing called trackables where you may have one of those items also has some sort of GPS registry to it or some some barcode or something, and you take it from one location to another. So if you see a trackable, the idea is you take it out and then you put it in the next cache that uh, that you discover. So it's basically a fancified uh, solo ongoing scavenger hunt that you could do at any time. So can a what comes to um, mind immediately? before we before we jump into the next thing we should cover letterboxing which was a term unfamiliar to me when Carrie asked the question uh, letterboxing is a sort of uniquely english form of geocaching it was created in 1854 on dartmoor which is a forbidden and wild and desolate place or at least according to the hound of the baskervilles and why would it lie and uh, this guy, Samuel Letterbox, Samuel Letterbox, uh, also known as James Perriott, used to place a bottle holding visiting cards at Cranmere Pool, and people would leave their visiting card in the bottle, and they would, and then that sort of expanded out into leaving letters or postcards inside boxes on the trail to Cranmere Pool that people would then uh, take the letter or postcard and they would mail it and you would see how long it had been since someone had come by. And eventually it evolved into a little hobby where you uh, there's a specific little uh, worked stamp and a little notebook in the box and you stamp your notebook with the stamp in the box and you take your personal stamp and stamp that into the notebook that's in the box. So you're like leaving your signature at the guest book in a hotel kind of thing. And that was uh, basically exclusive to uh, British people until the 90s when it sort of blew up. And then Americans said, well, that seems fun and harmless. Let's see if we can make it more fun and somewhat less harmless. And uh, it blew up and it's all over America now. And it is uh, not unlike geocaching, except that the, the, the letterboxing is... Uh, explicitly about leaving something of yourself and geocaching is not always necessarily that it's about more about the satisfaction of saying i have been to this gps point and i have seen the trinket or i have collected the geocache and, and uploaded the coordinates so that everyone knows i'm not lying and cheating so i guess let's let's start looking at uh, different premises that we can get from this i guess we're going to start with the simplest uh, gumshoe game and uh, that would be uh, fear itself and i think the idea of a group of kids either uh, stroppy teens or uh, perhaps your Stranger Things style uh, young teens could be uh, off engaged in geocaching and then they could just see something yep. out in the woods or in the parking lot or, or whatever it is when they're out at a time when nobody else is around. And that thing can be your your ghost, your spirit, your Sasquatch, whatever it is. And, and so this can be your entry point into, you know, why are the... Why are the kids off alone doing their own thing? And suddenly they see this other thing that they're lured into. So that's the the simplest game and the simplest possible way to add uh, geocaching. And I would think that uh, if I was a spy, Ken, that it would be very convenient that geocaching was now a thing because it would help you to disguise your dead drop activity. And so, Yeah, I mean, the, the, the downside, I guess, is that if you 
want to disguise it as a geocache, you have to register out on one of those geocache tracker sites. Right. Well, you're not disguising a place. You're just going. If you're asked, why are you wandering around in the forest by yourself, Russian embassy cultural attache, and you say, I have heard about new fad of geocaching, then no one literally in the world believes you. That's a great plan. (laughs) <laughs> but right. yeah, but, I, but mean, I think vampires would have a cleverer plan in Night's Black Agents, wouldn't they? I, I would think that they would. With vampire geocaching, I feel like, first of all, there is the sort of not geocaching as uh, MacGuffin, but geocaching as the real. Um, if you're a vampire and you live up in the mountains in Romania, well, you either suborn a Renfield or you move a geocache yourself into some desolate grotto where the sun doesn't filter down, even in the daytime, even at highest of noon. And so someone's going after the geocache and they wander into this little cave. And sure enough, there you are ready to uh, have your snack. And that is basically a, you can, I mean, you can use that for any sort of intelligent monster that has learned that the geocache will bring outsiders um, who will be looking at a screen instead of the world around them. And, can be eaten and you can you can certainly do that with knights black agents vampires i think a larger conspiracy would be using geocaching as cover and so you're not trying to cover up one spy you're trying to cover up a lot of activity so if you've got to infiltrate people in to dig up a a master vampire then you do salt the area with geocaches and you allow regular geocaching people in And you resist the temptation to bury your fangs in them because they're giving cover to the guys who are wandering in and using the, you know, the, the, the the hand of glory or whatever to find uh, the dead body of the, of the real vampire. And so you're using it more as chaff than you are as cover for any individual actor. Right. Right. Mutant city blues very simply is based on police procedurals. And I'm sure that since I stopped watching it uh, somewhere in the law and order franchise, presumably special victims unit, They've had a cold open where somebody's geocaching and they find a body, perhaps in Central Park, where lots of bodies get found on that show. Mm-hmm. And so that's something you could very easily do. And Mutant City Blues is have that the reason uh, why somebody uh, uh, finds a, a, a body that kicks off the mystery and brings your members of the uh, police squad to start investigating. Especially if it is, as you say, you know, very hard for a normal person to get to. If it's like way up on a crag or in the top of a sequoia tree or something, and you find a body lying there that has obviously, you know, fallen from a great height or been thrown up there with super strength, that can be the setup that, oh, now, yeah, we clearly know that's a super crime. Uh, MetaHuman did that, and we have to now, you know, call in the enhanced cops. Yeah, and there could be special geocaches for people of mutant powers. So, you know, you, uh, as you suggest, there's places that are difficult to get to, or uh, there's ones that you would need extra senses to see, and perhaps that could be the basis of some sort of geocaching mutant reality uh, TV show. So initially, it seemed like geocaching with all its GPS and everything would be a problem to get into a trail of Cthulhu. But as you've already explained, letterboxing exists in the 1930s. How do you get letterboxing into Trail of Cthulhu? I mean, to begin with, it's on Dartmoor, which is the creepiest, most haunted of moors, or at least in the southern part of uh, the island. So you already have some sort of activity going on there, some sort of uh, touching of the of the world of the unnatural, of the mythos. So you can easily imagine that these little letters that are being left behind, some of them contain mythos truths and 
It's a, a method by which either the cult or some entity is spreading its information, or perhaps an earlier letterboxer wandered into Dartmoor, saw the imminence of Yogg-Sothoth or, or the face of Nyagtha and snapped and has been wandering around there, writing their revelations down and putting them in each of these little letterboxes. And they're assembling, if you will, a mythos tome. And the Doughty investigators have to collect all the bad, dangerous letters up and also find this guy who is, you know, wandering around on the moors still and spreading badness. Oh, and also whatever he saw is still out there. So they have to be ready to shut it down. So the more of his letters they can find, the more information they'll have about the entity or the manifestation. So on the one hand, we want to catch him, but we don't want to catch him before he writes down, you know, what this thing does, you know, under a magnetic field or some other piece of information that you might want. So there's a, a, a literal scavenger hunt uh, quality to it. And you can do that, you know, either just we have to find all nine of these locations and each of them has something weird and creepy about it because it's Dartmoor, or we have to find all nine and we're going to abstract the first five and here are the last four that are the really troublesome ones because he's been, you know, walking through giant boulders to get his uh, letterbox down now. And that's getting creepy. Right. You can merge that with the Armitage files by having the documents that are appearing in the letterboxes uh, be the pages from Henry Armitage's diary from the future that foretells a great apocalypse. So you can add a little bit of uh, difficulty and challenge and danger to the process of uh, getting those pages from from the journal from that campaign and uh, possibly also the idea that uh, other people are are pursuing them and trying to uh, get them from you. Speaking of obvious, or this is normal now for the Yellow King, well, obviously, uh, someone is placing yellow signs. The, the trackable is a yellow sign. The trackable is a little portion of the play itself. And uh, every time someone picks up the trackable and moves it to another location, the influence of Carcosa spreads. And uh, that way it sort of moves covertly across the land in a way that uh, does not require the, the king or uh, members of his court to directly expose themselves until the power uh, grows and grows. And uh, the uh, characters might, you know, study an incident report of weird goings on and realize that the influence of the yellow sign is spreading across the continent and they can map it and then finally they can realize that it's being spread through uh, geocaching. Yeah, the the notion that the the yellow sign is moving by a random walk, you know, and that that is the sort of pattern that it's making is the is the line, you know, the old, the or sign that will open Carcosa. So once it you know, crosses its own path or makes a circle, everything inside that area is now under yellow influence, that it's actually a way to color in the map, if you will. And uh, very similarly for the Ezoterrorists, that would be a, a cult-tinged psyop where uh, people start to discover horrible things left in the geocaches, whether those would be weird alien insects or severed fingers or whatever horrible disturbing thing there is and the the good wholesome family folk who were geocaching uh, scramble away from it it's terrible it hits the news but then that brings out all of the uh, weirdos and deviants who want to find uh, these horrible new things being placed in the geocaches and of course what is that but a recruiting operation to find out what sorts of uh, uh, creeps uh, you can attract to uh, then approach and join your uh, esoterror cell so you can have uh, and of course, once that starts happening, the membrane weakens and uh, whatever awful being 
is trying to uh, work its way into our reality through this uh, can start to do that. And I like the uh, notion that esoterists are doing extreme geocaching and they're violating all those rules that you know you laid down at the beginning that good geocachers follow. And so some of them are dangerous and some of them are in, you know, tribal land that you're not supposed to walk on or they're in, you know, uh, a protected habitat. And it's that act of transgression that it's encouraging that is itself the act that begins to fold the membrane and make you the kind of obsessive. So it's a recruitment in that same way that you're like, oh, you won't let, you know, other people uh, get to this really dangerous geocache ahead of you, will you? No, of course not. And it's uh, similarly, it's a sieve for obsessives in the same way that uh, leaving, you know, severed baby fingers or whatever in the geocache is a sieve for uh, deviant weirdos. And the, the notion that the extreme geocache at some point, the most extreme imaginable geocache is something that's sitting just on the other side of the membrane, just on the other side of the veil. And so as they get more and more obsessed, they become more and more able to pierce the veil. And the first time someone reaches through to get that last geocache, they've actually opened it up and something really horrible can come in. Uh, from the other side, but it's about, you know, building up that obsession and, and distaste for rules and for other people. And in Ashen Stars, you could have a mystery where these strange, quasi-divine aliens are showing up and uh, just their mere appearance damages the translight corridors or does some other sort of harm. And it appears to be an invasion from a terrible new species. But the thing you discover is that, oh, that these are just aliens who are visiting these ancient archaeological sites that, as far as they're concerned, are completely still within their time scale, and they're involved in geocaching there. It's, it's a great, uh, you know, it could be a an alien hobby or part of an alien coronation ritual, and you have to find a way to uh, peacefully satisfy them uh, before their mere presence uh, continues uh, to destroy uh, the environment of your uh, mundane vibrational level. And I think on that note, I think there's a an exciting thing just at the top of that tree, and that's a commercial. But once we're up in the tree, we can look over and see what hut our next segment will take place in. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Palgrain Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21, that's CROWN21, to save... 15%. At palgrainpress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. The background check that you had to undergo in order to listen to this segment, not to mention the entirely painless retinal scan, tell us that we're once more in the trade craft hut. And this time around, Ken, estimable Patreon backers Craig Maloney uh, and Jeremy French saw something that was about to go to waste, which is one of the suggestions that uh, I think it was Craig originally gave us 
to do our scenario creation workshop that we did with Garhan Rahan on uh, first on Twitch and is now available for you to see on YouTube. We solicited a number of premises that uh, we could spin into this is normal now scenario. And one of the ones that uh, you were quite enthusiastic about, but was uh, not as on point as one of the others, was the fact that the CIA in the late 60s and early 70s had as an essential component of their disguise kit a face mask of the actor Rex Harrison. And from there, Ken, I think the rest of the segment writes itself. It pretty much does. I mean, we could we could just sit back and play um, uh, songs from the My Fair Lady soundtrack for 14 minutes, and that'd be enough. Everyone's done. Right. Rex Harrison famously had a one and a half note vocal range, and uh, that is why Lerner and Lowe for My Fair Lady wrote all of Henry Higgins' songs as sort of talking songs. So uh, Rex Harrison was famous for a couple of things. Uh, one was for being a famously unpleasant collaborator. His <laughs> fellow actors and directors didn't, didn't love Rex Harrison. But also, he was the original rapper. So we have that to go by. But Ken, what about his weird face mask? What about his weird face mask? Well, for that, we have to talk about Antonio Mendez, who joined the CIA in 1965. Uh, he was a uh, artist, saw an ad, artists wanted overseas, answered the ad, and it was the CIA. So there you are. I guess they were trying to catch Jackson Pollock, but they were happy with Tony Mendez. So he joined the CIA uh, in their technical services division in 1965, began by forging documents and then moved up through the, the technical services as he his uh, great skill and patriotism made itself known. So in 1971, as the question of disguises and makeup became ever more important, uh, he begins consulting with Hollywood makeup mastermind John Chambers. And if you're remembering Argo, John Chambers is John Goodman and Tony Mendez is Ben Affleck. And that is their relationship, basically. Uh, John Chambers is one of the guys that made Spock's ears. He made the masks for the Planet of the Apes. He's a great guy. Huge, bigger-than-life personality, but that is how Mendez gets wired into Hollywood. So, when it comes about that they need full face masks because they have a black agent that they need to disguise, they go to Hollywood and they say, what do you got? And someone finds the aluminum facial molds for masks that were used by stunt doubles. So that when the stunt double is pretending to be Rex Harrison or Victor Mature on screen in, say, My Darling Clementine, Victor Mature doesn't have to be punched in his expensive face. Someone can be punched in a mask of his expensive face. Right. And in Dr. Doolittle, when a llama attacks Rex Harrison, the stunt double can wear the... Uh the Rex Harrison mask. Exactly. And so the, um, uh, so they got those molds. Uh, these were the large size heads, according to interviews later on uh, with Jana Mendez, who uh, succeeded Antonio Mendez as head of the uh, disguise uh, section of technical services. They had a small and a medium head. We don't know whether or not Sandy Duncan's head is out there somewhere, or um, I don't know who the medium head would be, but uh, they, they have, other heads. There's, there's an Elisha Cook Jr. head. There, there, there's an Elisha Cook Jr. head. That'd be great. Um, so they got these aluminum molds and then made the masks basically out of putty like you would make a dental uh, fixture out of. 
And that then is large enough that it can go over a large head of a person because Rex Harrison and Victor Mature were both big guys, uh, well over six feet. So they use those masks. We know, according to both Mendez, that on one mission, quote, late in the Vietnam War, which to my mind means 1973-74, they disguised a, a black CIA agent as a white businessman uh, for a car meeting. So the mask had to hold up when seen through a car window. And it was mostly because when you go back and you make your report and you say, oh, I met that businessman and he had a black buddy. People are like, oh, that was the black CIA agent that you just saw. Good. We, we now figured that out. So you just come back and say, no, it was a businessman and uh, his other businessman who looked, you know, I don't know, kind of familiar. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm. Uh, who can say? He looked like a waxy Rex Harrison. <laughs> looked like he could talk to the animals. That's all I get. Apparently, though, on their way to the meetup, they are stopped by the military police and, uh, you know, flashlight is shined into their car and they hold up their passports or their, you know, papers or whatever. And they're waved on. So it also works more than just seen through a car at a distance. It worked seen through a car close up. And that apparently gave the Mendezes the idea Oh, we can do a lot more with this. And as they began, you know, uh, working on it, they came up with better and better versions of the sort of face masks uh, until we have a, a version that was unclassified enough to be mentioned in the Mendez's memoirs called Dagger, which is a thin face mask. It can be applied by touch while walking. You don't have to be in front of a mirror or anything like that. The development on that began in 1978. It becomes available for missions in 1981. And by 1989, a dagger mask is completely paper thin, can markedly change your appearance. It can hold makeup and it can appear natural even to trained observers because Antonio Mendez wore the dagger or, or was it John? It was one of the Mendezes wore the dagger into a meeting with George Bush, George Bush senior, not W who I assume is easier to fool, but you know, former CIA head himself, George HW Bush and uh, got away with it. The secret service didn't say you're wearing a face mask. So that was how good it was in 1989, which means by now they literally could have mission impossible technology. They could be tearing off their plastic faces all the time and revealing Leonard Nimoy or Tom Cruise. And that's just the way it is. We don't even know what's going on. But all of that, of course, is built on the strong aluminum bones of Rex Harrison. So to put this in fall Delta green, we can <laughs> get a full on dagger mask capability uh, earlier in the development cycle. If you're willing to throw in a little eldritch magic or perhaps even uh, start little, uh, with a baseline. Little Shoggoth protoplasm. Yeah. Or uh, perhaps a pallid mask from Carcosa. Who knows? Who knows? So, Ken, how does this become a uh, Fall of Delta Green scenario? Um, this becomes a Fall of Delta Green scenario because you are hunting a majestic agent. And the majestic agent has been getting up to some sort of behavior and you don't know what he's been doing. And you determine from uh, eyewitness reports that a different person did all of the crimes or all of the, the, the infiltrations that you're looking at, but their MO is the same, etc. So you begin to get, Oh, I'm, we're dealing with a master of disguise. If you're CIA, you have contacts in the technical services division. You can maybe go meet Tony Mendez. Who's like, yeah, we're, we're trying this, um, uh, this new stuff, but you know, we can't make it with any kind of plastic available to us. Now uh, that would be some sort of, you know, you know, maybe it's, one of those new uh, technologies they're working on, you know, at the secret lab in New Mexico or whatever. And then 
You can track either the majestic mask building operation to wherever they're working with the pallid mask or the Shoggoth plasm or the uh, Migo, of course, have uh, super face mask technology. Any of those might be the, the, the origin. Or, of course, you are just hunting this majestic killer who, as he wears this alien mask, is becoming more and more susceptible to the whispers of Carcosa or Shoggoth uh, mind control, because, of course, Shoggoths are designed to be telepathically sensitive or uh, the Migo and their buzzing hints that while you're over here doing this mission, it would really uh, do us a solid if you would also plant this crystal, you know, underneath the Oval Office desk or whatever. And so you're following this uh, killer of a thousand faces who's also a trained majestic uh, badass. And uh, that is, I think, more than enough of a challenge for anybody is you, ha- you have to sort of get onto this guy's trail, figuring out what he's doing, figuring out what the voices in his mask are telling him to do next. And then you have to figure out who among you might be that guy, including ideally one of the player characters who you've gone to between sessions and said, you're not you, you're the majestic guy. He's onto you. He's infiltrating your group. Now you're in a mask, go for it. And then fun breaks out. And that really becomes your best chance to get him because he's right there in the room with you. So the fact that he gets one free shot at uh, the researcher and, and can burn all your files is, oh, that that's a tiny price to pay for the chance to attack him with a chair. <laughs> yes. Now, Rex Harrison himself is, of course, uh, very much alive uh, during this period. Uh, some of the films we've referenced, uh, Dr. Doolittle had famously a nearly studio destroying big budget, terrible film was, uh, I think, 69. And it's hard to look at his filmography and find something that has a cool elliptonic twist to add to it, uh, the closest you come is he played famously plays a ghost in The Ghost of Mrs. Muir from uh, 1947. So, although it's, I suppose it's possible that his living spirit could begin to inhabit people who uh, wear the mask and become uh, more truculent and lose vocal range, I think uh, that's that's not as nearly as fruitful and too amusing a uh, a thread to go down for for Fall of Delta Green. Yeah, I feel like if you're wanting to sort of bring it into Hollywood and bring it into the real Rex Harrison. You're talking about a different sort of a scenario. You're talking about one in which, I mean, first of all, you have to move the Rex Harrison mask back into the era, but let's say it's a 1970s flare jeans, Delta green, super cowboy era with mustaches and the, and the whole nine. And then you are going into Hollywood and you have to track down the fact that, you know, Rex Harrison's face just keeps showing up everywhere. And it is in fact that something imprinted and um, uh, there's just a stuttering mythos experience. And then you get to sort of, you know, um, go on Hollywood sets and, and wander around and everyone's in a mask and it becomes sort of a, an inherent vice sort of a, a existential detective adventure, maybe with a mythos component that I think would feel sort of halfway between Delta green and halfway between a loose seventies yellow King, right? Yellow King crossed with Jason King, Robin. That's our, that's our new thing. Yeah. yeah I think it would inevitably take on a, a satirical uh, overtone that is not necessarily the best fit with uh, Delta green. You could also, I suppose, do, a one-shot uh, Delta Green version of the Iran hostage rescue, mm-hmm. I think, would be more on brand uh, for the setting. Well, one thing that is on brand for this podcast is that we abruptly shift from one segment through a beautiful, lovely, hand-tooled commercial into, and I'm just going on a limb here, some other segment.
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from assassins with a one-and-a-half-note vocal range by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Fred Kish. Jeremy French. John Kingdom. Aryan Poutsma and Brian Malcolm. The unrolling scrolls and sutras, the statues of gods and heroes, and the illimitable sound of someone kicking Joseph Campbell really hard in the face welcome <laughs> us to the Mythology Hut. And here in the Mythology Hut, as always, we have to, you know, make our obeisances to the Lares and Panades of the Mythology Hut, and we have to gesture to the gods of the Mythology Hut. And in this case, Robin, we have to face the right direction, or else the gods will be mad at us, and then we won't have a hut at all. Because you have stumbled, in your way, on the uh, mostly Shinto concept of the directional taboo. And I'm sure you have far more information than I do. I can tell you that it began in pre-Han Dynasty China, this notion of directional taboos. It's one of the foundations of feng shui, the art form, not the role-playing game, or the geomantic uh, practice, not the role-playing game. But uh, in Japan, as always, they've taken someone else's idea and made it cooler and weirder and given it more rules. So go for it, Robin. Right. So uh, in in the Han uh, period in, in Japan... Directional taboos are a big part of court life for the nobles. And uh, you might guess that from having done the uh, segment in which we uh, referred to the tale of Genji, I'm, I'm currently reading it. <laughs> and uh, one of the plot points is uh, as part of the sort of romantic slash political court intrigue, people have to be very careful about when they travel, where they travel, and especially when you travel to or from your own home, you can be in big trouble and you can anger the, uh, in this case, the, the Taoist gods by violating directional taboos. And so uh, these are known as uh, ketemi or interdictions. And the act of avoiding a negative direction is called katatage. And so uh, what you want to do is... Uh, uh, it, it may be the case that, you know, you are in your country home and you're wanted at court, but you just can't go there because there's a, a God blocking your way. And by God, we're talking about something that is sort of like a God, sort of like a demon, sort of like a great spirit or kami. So, you know, our mere categories of all of those things are insignificant uh, to them, but they are very fastidious about uh, where you go and when you go things. Now, certain directions specifically the Northeast, that's just always bad. So, uh, you know, if you're going to build... A <laughs> if only we had North that simple wisdom in America, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I guess, Ken, you can explain that that is why Chicago is better than 
New York City. Because exactly. City yes. It's, to your northeast. Yeah. It, it angers the gods. I think everyone right. knows that. Although that begs the question of why we're using Chicago as a reference point. But uh, that's an eternal question on this podcast. <laughs> what, what else would you use, Robin? Please. Just like ancient Egypt, you use as the central reference point the place the gods touched the earth. Duh. Right. So if you were faced when you wanted to move from, say, your house to your lover's house, or if you were recalled to court, it might be necessary to, instead of going from point A to point B, you might have to stop off for the night at point C at somebody else's house and become their guest and stay there in order to avoid violating the, the directional taboo. And, and as you point out, there's uh, extensive uh, rules for this. It's all, all very mathematically clear. You can go talk to your Taoist priest if you're confused. But the different, let's call them gods for the sake of this discussion, have different periods of time where they will block your path. So Tanishi Jin will block your path for a mere five days before moving on. He's a, he's a peripatetic entity, and he's going to keep moving around. Uh, that, of course, makes him uh, more difficult to track as he moves around more often. You have to you know, really be sure where he is in relationship to you, so you're not violating that. Even more uh, cooperative and or annoying, uh, depending on how you want to look at it, whether you uh, think that moving frequently is annoying or just hanging around for a short period is good. There's uh, Taihaku. He'll stay around for one day. The Daishogun, or Hojin God, will stay for three years. He'll block a path to your village for like three years. But in between those, he will occasionally take five-day breaks, enabling you to, to move around. Kanjin, who's the uh, kami who moves back and forth between the two demon gates of Japan, uh, they're called demon gates because he inhabits them. He's he's a demon. Because a demon lives in them. That's the legitimate reason. Yeah, but it's, this is all self-explanatory. I don't know right. how you're yeah. covering this. He stays around for a year. And then there's a, a tandem group. There's Oh God and So God. And they both hang around for a month and a half, but one follows the other. So Oh God will go occupy a position. And then six weeks later, he'll move on. But then Oh God will take that place. And so functionally... Uh, there'll be a three-month period where a particular direction that they are hanging around on is... Now can you sneak through during the transition? I don't know if they give you the little... It, it's, it seems like they they hand it off pretty pretty clear, but that th that's what your adventurers are going to have to figure out, right? Yeah, it, yeah. Whether there's a, a way to, to, to slide uh, through. Now, given all this, this seems contradictory, but also gods move around on the vernal equinox. So... When people wanted to shift households and move around, there was like a mad scramble, uh, just like in Montreal, where there's one moving day every year. Yeah, and, or Chicago, where, you know, uh, first of June, all the U-Hauls are all over the streets. I did not know that uh, Montreal and Chicago had that, that karmic bond. Uh, so anyway, suddenly Vernal Equinox. We're both gangster very, very towns. Busy. You know it. We both speak English. Now, one way to get around this is that your home would, would be easier to move around and somewhat exempt from some of these directional taboos, if you made your home also a temple. You could uh, combo those up. And well, Robin, I, I hope the Taoist priests would let you do that. Well, I, I can't imagine that the Taoist priests would ever benefit in any way, shape, or form from you lavishly appointing part of your estate as also a temple that would need, for example, a Taoist priest to be in residence. I can't, yeah. can't imagine that because... This is all laid out in detailed rules that you can check and see. Yeah, you can check them with any Taoist priest. Yes. So, assuming for the moment that you're not playing a game, however, in the uh, Heian period, and you're not, because if you do that, 
players will say, where are the samurai? And then you'll say to them, samurai haven't been invented yet. And they will get up and leave the room and not play your game. They will cry. Right. So what else can we think of? What if we have uh, directional taboos and the movements of the gods in, say, an F20 uh, world? What what can we get up to there, bringing this into the broader mix master of uh, fantastic ideas that uh, the F20 universe inhabits? Well, I mean, I think one of them, th- there's two possibilities. Either the god obstacle is why you have to go through the one town on your way to the, you know, rescue the princess or do whatever. And it's just, you know, GM Fiat. You can't go up that road. There's a god blocking it. There's a big, powerful demon sitting on it. There's a god blocking the part of the map I haven't uh, I haven't yet. mapped yet. Uh, then, the, yeah, it's weird how the only road that doesn't have a god sitting on it is the one that goes to the adventure I wrote. <laughs> you can imagine that. And then that, of course, then gives the players, if they're proper Western role players, the goal of being strong enough to kill a road-blocking god. And that can inspire them, or that can be another opportunity to socialize and learn more about the universe is that you send the cleric out to placate them, the bard to sing a cool song about how great it is that the road is blocked. And maybe you learn stuff from the god, not necessarily about what's on the other side of the road, but about, you know, what they're looking for. And maybe you can agree with them that, yeah, block this road, but there's another road we'd really love you to block. And it leads out of the dragon's cave and we don't want any, you know, wagons of treasure being removed from it. So, you know, we're trying to talk the God-blocking demon into going and blocking the exit. So it would move from mere obstacle to thing you can tactically deal with to thing you can kill and take all of their magic stuff. And that is the progression, I think, of everything in F20. And uh, you can certainly do it that way. I think in you can have some fun in the 13th Age world, where if you have a, a negative relationship with a given icon, that icon will often either block the road or will send uh, one of their, you know, minion, powerful minions to block the road just to mess with you. Um, there may be a, a system of rules whereby you can only approach the druid from the south. And if you don't approach the druid from the south, they're already mad at you. And so you have a negative relationship with them, even if you normally have a positive relationship. And then the the fun is coming up with reasons why the player characters are really going to need to approach him from the north, even though they know it's the wrong thing to do. And then you can have dramas that will approach the sort of questions that you might have. I don't know. Does the tale of Genji like turn on this? Someone really has to go Northeast, even though it's, it's terrible and impossible and bad luck. And so horrible things happen. Or is there a thing where it's just gravity, right? Or you just accept that you can't go there. So this is why you're stuck in your house for a year and have right. to yep. entertain this uh, suitor and, eventually grows on you. Yeah. And that brings oh, us so to... It's, so, it's, so the gods are basically there just to set up a rom-com. <laughs> in the case of Tale of uh, Genji, yes. There's <laughs> there's other malign supernatural forces in it. Or rather, I should say, so far. Tale of Genji turns out, Ken, to be 25% again as long as Lord of the Rings. So <laughs> I, I'm going to be at this for a while. Right. Um, well, uh, get ready for, for a long road to the Northeast, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So uh, next year, there'll be a segment on it, I guess. But at any rate, it creates a conceit uh, requiring you to visit a particular place or leaving you in that particular place. So in a, a sort of a gothic fantastical world, it can be either the reason you have to go to the weird old house slash temple because you can't go between your normal two households as you ordinarily would. So you have to stay for the night in the spooky old house, or it may be, Hmm, now that we're in the spooky old house, Oh gosh, we got to stay here for a whole year. That's, yep. Guess we got to deal with that. But of course, the idea, you're not F20 characters. 
in this universe in a here, gothic uh, yeah in, in tale again it's like if the god says you can't go there uh you can't you don't mess with that there's, there's severe circumstances to getting spirits mad at you let alone god so you're you're just gonna there's no circumventing of this so far. Genji breaks a lot of rules, but he yeah. doesn't break directional uh, taboos. And I guess that's the thing is, as in Tale of Genji, this uh, directional interdict becomes more of a uh, a premise than it is an obstacle or a, or a character in the story. And so it's it's rejecting that premise is like rejecting any other premise. It, it's like you're on the airplane on your way to Antarctica. I didn't want to fly to Antarctica. I want to ride a boat. And it's like, too bad. You're on the airplane. That's where the adventure is. Same deal. The god is blocking the road. We try and fight the god. You can't do that. The premise is the god is blocking the road. You have to do something in this town. You can't just pick up stakes and move on and leave wreckage behind you as you always do F20 people. Well, speaking of that, I think Tahaku is about to move away from the route that leads us to our final segment. So let's uh, get going before he changes his mind. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to pause on the landing. We're going to wave to the uh, painting of the mystic king of the fire salamanders. He's a very cheerful soul, as always. He gives us a nice little amphibian wink. And then we go on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist. And there he's in his smoking jacket. And he's uh, perhaps uh, finishing up a little bit of uh, Argentinian beef. Because, uh, Ken, this time we're going to talk about... Often the figures we discuss on, on this podcast, we sort of have to go, well, we'll have to fictionalize them in order to make them proper villains because we don't want to uh, blaggard somebody's real name. But this time we're going to talk about a genuine real life archmelon. Yeah. And whatever <laughs> horrible thing that you can think of for him to be doing in your plot line, he did worse in our actual life. And that's Jose Lopez Rega. I think we've touched on him a couple of times. I think we may have mentioned him once in passing. Mentioned him like in the context of posadism and maybe even of uh, the P2 Lodge. But it turns out he's quite a big deal and would be better known if the archvillains of uh, Central and South America uh, rode higher in our consciousness level. So, Ken, 
Tell us about Jose Lopez Rega. All right. Jose Lopez Rega is born in 1916 and he becomes a cop. He joins the federal police in 1944, becomes a corporal and gets assigned to presidential guard duty. And right. that, and, and this is Argentina, by the way. Yeah, right. Yes, this is Argentina. And uh, he doesn't like it. It's boring as uh, presidential guard duty is. And he's only a corporal. Being a henchman. Not, not fun. Not fun. And so he uh, really wants to focus on his tenor singing career. So that's what he does. And if that had been it, then we just have a boring uh, side character in The Sopranos right. and we well, move on. No other fascist has ever gone into fascism after failing in the world of the arts. After failing in literally anything else. But in 1951, he meets a diviner named Victoria Montero. And he sees, according to later re- recollection, uh, the candle in her studio melt into the shape of a dove. And this he takes as a sign from the astral world that bigger things are, are on for him. Uh, he keeps going back to her house. He uh, calls in sick to the police and says, I can't come to work. I'm crazy and evil. And they say, well, only one is allowed at the cops and they hang up on him. So he gets into esoteric uh, practice via Victoria Montero. She probably introduces him to Freemasons. Freemasons in Argentina in the 50s probably couldn't be ladies, but she probably knew lots of Freemasons. He gets into Freemasonry. He learns astrology and candle divination and all kinds of other things from her and is turned on to the works of Alice Bailey, who is a relatively blameless woman to the extent that pseudo-Christian theosophists are blameless people. Uh, she died in 1949 and cannot be blamed for any of this. She believed in a living cosmos. She believed in seven rays. She was probably super anti-Semitic, so I guess blameless was the wrong word for me to use. My bad. But again, par for the course for theosophy in the day and certainly for the sort of Christianized theosophy that wanted to make sure that when the new root race came out, it would be proper Jesus root race, not bad other root races. So she's very big about uh, summoning Jesus back to the earth. That's one of her things that she wants to do. Anyway, uh, Rega or Lopez Rega absorbs this, sets himself up as a, div- a, a diviner. He creates talismans for people. He studies Macumba, which is a Brazilian uh, Afro-Caribbean spiritual practice, similar to Candomblé. And uh, is usually depicted as sort of the black magic-y side of it, although actual Macumbists get very mad when you say that. But he uh, sort of draws in a bunch of different occult strands and becomes sort of the head of his own little occult group, which may have been uh, eventually a proper secret society called NAL. I've seen that connected to him, but whether he started it or just wound up running it is unclear because... As of, uh, you alluded to earlier, it's all in Spanish. So there we are. The Anael Society gives him some throw weight in uh, Argentine occult circles. At some point, he becomes a member of the P2 Masonic Lodge, which is also the Masonic Lodge that you are in if you are wired into hardcore right-wing politics. And so I don't know if he becomes a member of the P2 Lodge before or after he meets Isabel Perón. Right. And, and the P2 Lodge is... Italian, and I guess there's an offshoot. Yes, it's, it's from Milan, right? Yeah, and uh, our full segment on uh, the P2 Lodge is in episode 187, if you want to yep. go back and dial that up. Creepy weird masons. So, uh, Isabel Perón has in common with Lopez Rega that she too was a nightclub singer, more successful than Lopez Rega, because she, in 1955, while uh, at a nightclub, met 
uh, Juan Perón, 35 years her senior and recently uh, widowed uh, when Ava Perón died. Uh, he was very sad and she cheered him up. And uh, she cheered him up so much that the Spanish authorities made him marry her if he wanted to keep living in Spain with her. So he, he marries her in 1961. Uh, in 1965, because Perón is forbidden from coming back to Argentina because he was a dictator and the military government that overthrew him said, yeah, you don't get to come back to Argentina. So yes, we're busy being the dictators. We, now. We only one, one dictator at a time. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's how dictators work. That's how we do it. And so uh, she becomes his go-between. Uh, she uh, is herself occultically minded and meets Lopez Rega, uh, calls him her prophet Daniel, and then um, uh, hires him basically for their entourage. He moves to Spain as the head of their security team and then becomes personal secretary to the Perones. And uh, when the Perones come back into power in 1973, when a Peronist is elected uh, president, he's appointed Minister of Social Welfare, which is... <laughs> which is just the position and if you've got a black magician on staff. Right. Social welfare, that's what he's... Social welfare. And his first task, apparently, as Minister of Social Welfare, is to organize something called the Aziza Massacre. And you think that doesn't sound very social welfare at all. It's like, well, welcome to Argentina and Lopez Rega. And, you know, the night of the long knives, you know, when uh, uh, they purged uh, half the SA, the left half of the SA, they did that at night. It was it was a night of the long knives. The Azaza massacre literally during a Peronist rally. Peron arrives from Spain in triumph paraded down the streets, gets up onto the speaker stand, going to make one of them big, you know, fascist orations. Uh, the Peronist movement, by the way, has, in his exile, unified uh, the far left and the far right, because none of them like the current guys. And so they're in an uneasy alliance that brings Peron back. And uh, Lopez Rega is on team far right. And so he sets up snipers literally on the reviewing stand to shoot the leading left Peronists down in the crowd during the rally. That's, that's just a, that, that, that just amazed me. I had to look it up twice to make sure I was reading it correctly. That's straight up Archvillain stuff. <laughs> that's, that's super Archvillain stuff. And yep, they kill a lot of people at the Azaza massacre. This is sort of the, the moment that the left Peronists say, uh, no, thank you. And they begin a terror movement against the new Peronist government. Peron is elected president in his own right shortly thereafter. And at the same time, our boy Lopez Rega forms something called the Triple A which I don't know if it's a reference to Crowley's double A and one more A, so even better, but it it exoterically stands for Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance. And what it is, it's a good old-fashioned death squad. He and the federal police chief get together and they go around and they um, finish the Eliza massacre job, basically, of killing every prominent left Peronist and general communist now in the country and anyone else who looks at them funny. They kill at least 1,122 people, according to the Argentine Supreme Court, and the number is probably higher than that, maybe as high as 2,500 people. Uh, among the things that they launch are 220 separate terrorist attacks, so they kill people with bombs and all manner of other indiscriminate methodologies. It's not just vanish in the night and you're gone. It's very public street warfare type killing people. Right, and you don't normally think of terrorism as something done by the regime. In by power. the government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there you go. And again, it, you know, the, the, the left Peronists and the communists were also doing terrorism. But when the federal police are doing terrorism, it's 
something considerably worse, you would imagine. And it certainly spooks everyone in Argentina a good deal. Juan Perón then dies in 1974. He was probably not at his best even in 1973. Uh, his wife, Isabel, had been vice president because at the Peronist party convention, the left and right wings couldn't agree on who should be vice president. And so they could only agree on Isabel. It's, it's a Peronist party. Her name is Peron. Uh, right. There we are. Uh, she becomes president and, of course, then promotes her prophet Daniel, he stays minister of social welfare, but he also becomes what's called presidential secretary, but is more like what we know as the chief of staff in America. And then he also uh, gets put in charge of the federal police to sort of, you know, uh, streamline all the death squatting. It is at this point that his nickname of El Brujo, which is the witch or the sorcerer, as it is more often translated in connection to Lopez Rega, becomes very popular. He makes, according to at least one report that I saw, a failed attempt to resurrect Juan Perón. When he uh, fled Argentina, not to spoiler it, uh, in his house, they found a fetish doll with interchangeable heads, which implies that he was working with some sort of um, a transference of magical personality or soul. And he did a, a reportedly promise Isabel, because there is a giant cult of Eva Perón all over the country, that he can summon up the ghost of Eva Perón and put it inside Isabel so that she can then have the power of Isabel Perón. Now, I don't want to tell Perons what to do. But if I was any other prone other than Eva prone, I would not seek that. I, w I would think that could go badly. Yeah, this seems like a terrible idea. But again, I would not have thought of let's have snipers at our own rally as a methodology. So Lopez Rega, he thinks bigger than you and I, Robin, and eviler. Anyway, uh, once he's running the whole country, it turns out that having a former nightclub singer, or in this case, two former nightclub singers running your country is a terrible idea. They devaluate the peso in order to get out from under international debt. This is a disaster economically. Everyone turns on them. And Lopez Reg is forced to resign in 1975. Isabel appoints him ambassador to Spain, which I suppose means <laughs> get the house warmed up again, because I'll bet this is not going to happen. She gets deposed in 1976. At which point, Lopez Rega then goes on the lam and hides out under another name. Uh, in 1986, he's attempting to renew his Argentine passport at the Argentine consulate in Miami, which triggers the FBI. They arrest him and extradite him to Argentina, where he dies in prison, a well-deserved death in prison in 1989. So that was the brief and literally insanely evil career of Lopez Rega. Uh, Jose Lopez Rega, El Brujo, to you and me. Right. Now, uh, this is one where we cross the huts. This is a dangerous hut crossing uh, here because Rega shows up in uh, Jacques Vallée's diaries in the 1970s, specifically his fellow French ufologist Jacques Bergier in 1972 warns him about this Argentine named Lopez Rega. And he apparently is also up to his uh, waist in uh, UFO theory. And he's a big promoter of the extraterrestrial theory. And according to what Berger tells Valley, there's a neo-Nazi conspiracy to promote belief in an alien invasion among the Western public. So this could not be any more uh, Delta Green, except that <laughs> it's uh, slightly outside the, the time frame of uh, fall of Delta Green. It's more of those, those uh, uh, bell-bottom mustache cowboy Delta Greens that we've talked about. Exactly, yeah. And also, apparently, he is uh, convincing his followers, and whether that means members of his secret society or, or what is not clear here, that there were uh, subterranean ectoplasms uh, living under Buenos Aires. 
and that he's in contact with them. Uh, and so that's sort of he's drawing on the Shaver mystery. And it also kind of seems like he is uh, laying the groundwork for the whole pervasive government has been in contact for years with alien theory that uh, is is now so omnipresent. So he may have uh, sort of in a backstairs way uh, been the one to kind of touch that off. Apparently he's uh, erecting monuments shaped like crystal balls. And uh, there's a point where Ali has his contact in the uh, U.S. intelligence establishment say, you should, you should ask your guys about this Rega character, see if they react, if he's on their radar. And the contact comes back to him and says, what did you have me say? <laughs> because they, it's, they reportedly went ballistic uh, when they heard the name. And uh, they, they knew Rega very well, apparently, to the point where they knew his daughter was attending uh, university in California. So it looks like uh, now, uh, like so much in Valley, it's second or third hand. It's all rumor mill stuff, but uh, it is not uh, too far outside of the realm of possibility to say that there would be contacts between the uh, U.S. intelligence establishment and dictatorial rulers in South America. And uh, clearly it's not out of bounds to say that the uh, fictional version of them that are aware of UFOs and the occult uh, know exactly who he was and uh, what they're dealing with. And in, in, in the real world that, you know, even if they didn't uh, turn him up on their own, once he joins P2, he would have been uh, wired into CIA because the P2 is behind the Christian Democrat government in Italy. And they, of course, are big fans of the CIA, not least because they've got a lot of communists who are running around setting off bombs. So the CIA would have picked up on Rega via the P2 even before Isabel and uh, Juan Perón come back to power in 73. If this uh, date is 1972, as you say, this is when he is sort of shuttling back and forth between Spain and Argentina and setting up uh, the laying the groundwork for the Peronist resurgence in 1973. And uh, the CIA probably in, in 1973 would not have been pro Peron because of that big left component, but they would have been pretty excited that someone was starting an Argentine anti-communist alliance. Uh, that would have made their little hearts sing. I'll bet. They might've looked at that sniper incident and gone, Oh, well that's very direct. He's a go-getter. That's, that's quite the way. That's quite the way. That's, that's the sort of, you know, Avis, we try harder because we're number two mentality. We like in our cutouts and uh, thumb guys. So do we have a candidate for the uh, subterranean ectoplasms who live beneath Buenos Aires? I think that uh, the subterranean ectoplasms that live beneath Buenos Aires are probably, if I'm guessing, which I literally am, are the cabaclos, the sort of um, ulterior spirits from Macumba, that there's a notion that uh, in Brazilian Afro-Caribbean religion specifically, that great heroes of the past stay around as sort of God figures. And the Cabaclos are sort of these nature versions of it who are noble natives that were, you know, extirpated during the, you know, expansion of European conquest. And that these Cabaclos, you can approach them. And so I would expect that if there are subterranean ectoplasms that Lopez Rega is approaching, they are the equivalent of Cabaclos for Argentina, that they are these figures that are either primal figures from the past or they're dead heroes that he is in con contact with. And that sort of ties into the resurrecting Eva Peron and resurrecting Juan Peron stuff that he was talking about. I feel like that it's not necessarily a uh, Dero's, but I also feel like Alice Bailey 
is very into the living cosmos and the fact that other planets have life on them. And so, although she doesn't talk about UFOs, she talks about enough stuff that is UFO adjacent, that especially the sort of more mystical Adamskyite UFOs really pull from Alice Bailey a great deal. So I feel like that he, he would easily have uh, known about the, the big UFO flaps in the 1960s and as a just surely as an occult grifter slash fascist underground operator would have wired that into whatever story he was peddling, even if he didn't believe it. Um, as far as I know, he believed all this nonsense. He was like Himmler. He wasn't a cynic using the occult. He legitimately thought he had magic powers. And so the subterranean ectoplasms are themselves not necessarily evil, right? At worst, they're just hanging around quietly judging you. Yeah, right. They're, they're just doing their stuff. But he's trying to rope them in to his scheme. And uh, presumably, since we're pretty sure Juan Perón did not get at least, you know, effectively resurrected, you know, perhaps there was some sort of botch mm. job going on there. But since that didn't happen, I think we can assume that they uh, turned down the opportunity to uh, join a, a, a fascist death squad. Or to uh, join a, a, a fascist government even. But yeah, they, they, they weren't having any of it, I, I imagine. Or they turned him down and he just lied to his followers because it's not like they can check. Right. right. And so the idea of uh, it could well be then that there's sort of a game of telephone here and that he wasn't at all trying to create the... UFO aliens in contact with the government, but that once you filter it through the intelligence establishment and then some ufologists, that's what it turns out to be. And that these may, may well not be the origin story for that uh, trope. Yeah. I mean, the trope of secret government involvement in UFOs can be seen before 1972, but it really blows up in 1980 in, in America. So Lopez Rega is possibly one of the channels. Possibly he is being channeled in the sense that this is all in the air and he's picking it up and drawing it in. And if you're bigging up your fascist secret society to people, yeah, you say the UFOs are behind it and we know the truth and it will all be revealed once we're in power and I'm minister of social welfare. So for Cowboy 70s Delta Green or Moondust Men, do we need to do anything more complicated than an extraction mission that takes people to Argentina during this period and uh, you have to uh, get an important contact out before something uh, either just regular terrible or occult terrible happens to them? I, th I think that's a big start of it. I think another thing that you could do if you wanted to is have a acquisition mission where there is a um, an alien MacGuffin of some kind in the labyrinthine sewers under Buenos Aires and you found out about it because of your own awesome UFO detecting power and it's a race. And so you're inserted into Buenos Aires during the, the, the high, high water mark of Lopez Rega's sorceress rule. And you have to sneak into the labyrinthine sewers and get this thing and remove it, possibly dealing with ectoplasmic cabaclos and possibly just dealing with a bunch of occult fascist uh, death squads uh, hunting you through the sewers. And you can, of course, tie that into as much or as little Jorge Luis Borges as you wish, because he's got labyrinths and unknowables and intelligences that uh, look ironically on the world throughout his work. And as far as I'm concerned, any excuse to work Borges into a role-playing game is an excuse you should take. That's certainly always been my policy. Well, my policy also is when we uh, finish a fourth segment, this uh, episode 
must uh, sadly come to an end, but also happily, because uh, next week we're going to have, Ken, our 450th anniversary episode, our 450th episode. And you know what that means? It's time for... Lightning Round! Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast's directional travel unblocked alongside such sublime Patreon backers as... Drew Eichholz. Daniel Markwig. Will Ferguson and Fifi Pyatt. Lionel P. Hatebreak. And Tony Kemp. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show off your duck deception skills with our latest design, Eight Points in Surveillance. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.